As many people who are probably listening to this podcast know, the average human ear tunes out after about six minutes wow. of orality, right? Okay. Um, it used to be, when I studied voice and speech in college, it was like nine. Okay. So in the past decade and a half, it's gone down three minutes. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode might be characterized as a kind of cheat sheet for giving a TED Talk. Now, I realize, of course, that not everyone will be in a position to give a TED Talk, but most of us in our careers come to a point where we need to share our accumulated expertise for an audience. I know that I've been able to deepen and expand my career by talking about travel in various venues. But like most people, I was never really trained in the ways of sharing my expertise with an audience. It is, after all, one thing to master the world you know, but it's another thing altogether to communicate that mastery to other people. That's why today's guest is writer and actor Elena Passarello. Elena taught a memoir class for me last summer at the Paris Writing Workshop, and I was impressed by the way she used her talents and insights to coach students into fine-tuning their public speaking. It struck me as the kind of training that anyone, writers or not, might find useful, so I sat her down and asked her about her strategies for how to best speak to an audience. Our conversation goes beyond a simple bullet-pointed list of advice, in part because public speaking is a process-oriented practice. In this way, Elena and I don't just talk about content preparation, but about cultivating the right mindset and getting a sense for who it is you're talking to. We talk about being concrete with your language and taking care to manage your speaking time in an effective way. We talk about framing your information in such a way as to leave the audience wanting for more. Our conversation took place in Paris last summer, so in a sense this episode is sponsored by the Paris Writing Workshop. I host writing classes in Paris each summer, and I invite you to come out and join us there this July or August, or in London in June. To check out the writing classes we offer on topics like poetry and travel writing and big idea books, just go to pariswritingworkshops.com. And if you end up coming to Paris for one of our classes, you might consider making it your first stop on a vagabonding journey around the world. More on how you can do just that by checking out my sponsor, Airtrex, which creates affordable round-the-world tickets for vagabonding travelers. Check out their flight planning tools at airtrex.com. But for now, please listen to my chat with Elena Passarello. Our conversation took place in Paris in the Jardin des Plantes, which is the 17th century botanical garden at the edge of the 5th arrondissement. Elena starts by relating the story of the first giraffe that was brought to the Jardin des Plantes in Paris in the year 1826. Let's listen in. One fun thing about sitting in your class earlier this year when you're talking about spoken word is that it was just so practical and applied that you were talking about. And it feels like maybe not everybody in my audience is necessarily going to be reading an essay or a poem they wrote, but they have to give a presentation. And there's, oh, sure. a, yeah. there's sort of a similarity to just speaking in front of an audience in a way that I feel like we're sort of under instructed on how to do this. We're yeah. just sort of thrown into the deep end of the pool and you actually have some acting chops and some performance chops yeah. and that help people out. But before we jump into that, you were going to tell me a giraffe story that's relevant to where we are, which is the Jardin de Plantes, yes. the fifth arrondissement of Paris. Yes. Oh, I'm so yeah. Uh, I think I'm going to see if I can find evidence. I'm going to go on a giraffe hunt after we chat. So, right here in 1826, and from 1826 for like another 30 years, like the first giraffe to ever set foot on French soil that we know of uh, showed up. 
uh, and lived here. Well, certainly didn't just hike in from the forest. She did, no. How did it show up? No, so uh, it was Charles, it was, what's the, the, the king that took over after Napoleon when they re restored the monarchy. I think okay. that's Charles the 10th or Charles the 5th. Okay. Uh, the uh, a, a sort of uh, pasha in Egypt wanted to sort of make good with all the heads of Europe. So he was like, I'm going to send you guys a giraffe. Okay. And Charles was like, I want the Jardin de Plante to be fancy. So he's he'd been sort of looking for a new, a new menagerie, a public menagerie down here okay. to, to keep down here. And he was getting things. And he actually took a lot of animals from disposed uh aristocracy in the revolution so disposed or deposed deposed okay. yeah i guess well maybe disposed maybe too both. honestly yeah um but like there were you know big cats at versailles that ended mm, up here mm. so they the um this pasha in egypt it was like i took four years for this giraffe to get from i think ethiopia is where she was born um she and they they got her when she was two months old and sort of really acclimated her to um humans and she made it all the way up to the top of Africa and then took a boat to Marseille. It was a cold, wet spring and they had brought this guy whose name is all over this area of Paris, uh, Geoffroy uh, Saint-Hilaire. Oh, yeah. And it's Jeffrey, like giraffe. So, you know, like the Toys R Us giraffe is named Jeffrey and I'm pretty sure that's why. Uh, he was this sort of master naturalist, quite old, and they were like, you need to help us get this giraffe to the king. And when they put her on the boat from Africa to Marseille, they they uh, they cut a hole in two of the decks of the boat for her head to pop through, and they took really good care of her. And she had this velvet ribbon uh, around her neck, and everybody was really excited. And they were very worried about putting her on a second boat up the Rhone to get to uh, Paris. So it was very wet, very cold winter. She wintered in somebody's house in um, Marseille, and rumors started to spread about this animal, you know, that nobody had ever seen before. There had been a giraffe about 400 years ago in Italy, and of course quite quite a few in Rome, but no French ones. Uh, and so what year, this is the late 1700s? Or? 1826. 18, early 1800s. Yeah, and uh, so uh, then um, once it sort of became spring, they were like, our only choice is to walk her. So they called Saint-Hilaire, and he and um, this, this handler who had been with Zarafa is what they called her, the giraffe, uh, for forever and a team of cows to give her milk because that's what they decided she needed and they all just walked about two miles an hour from it's like 400 miles from Marseille to Paris and every town they stopped in she caused an absolute panic so by the time she got to Paris women were styling their hair a la giraffe if you were if you were ill you would if somebody was ill you would ask them how goes the giraffe Georges Saint and Proust were writing about the giraffe in their letters uh, the fabric of the um, season was this kind of giraffe print the um, her handler had given her this Arabic medallion on a velvet ribbon and so all the women were wearing velvet ribbons and um, you know, she was like, people were renaming, like the, gir the giraffe slept here is like the name of these inns in like Arles and Nantes. And it was just, she just captured the imagination of France for a full summer. And then she ended up here. They walked her to Saint Cloud and back. It was like one day she did like a, um, like a 12 mile journey to meet the king. She ate from his hand. The king was very mad because he was the last person in France to see her. And then she ended up in a in some some room in the Jardin de Plante, uh, 
and all of the painters came and saw her and that's when all the art started circulating and the fashion got really big. And then of course, because it's France, she fell sort of out of fashion and then quietly lived out the rest of her days with the same handler who had been with her from the beginning who slept in the, this Egyptian guy who slept in the room with her. Wow. Isn't that great? And Are her bones here? No, they, uh, she's been taxidermied and some, for some reason she ended up in another museum further south in France. Okay. But I'm sure, uh, look, that, look, these crows have, that, just that crow has foot tags, see? Oh, wow. I see these, th these this one does too, but that guy doesn't. They, they have foot tags or like bread twisty ties wrapped yeah. around their legs. There must, be, there must be a project. I see every once in a while I'll see like a crow on a car here. This is the way. This is the way I go through France. Is I just like look at what all the animals are doing. So we're sitting in the garden <laughs> on the border of the garden, and the zoo is behind us. Yeah. And there's these large black birds walking around with sort of shin guards. It looks like. Yeah. It looks like they're wearing like little booties. Um, so as we prepare to talk about uh, the best ways to speak to an audience, be it reading something off of a page that you wrote, or giving a talk in general, what's your background in performance? Uh, I worked as an actor for about 10 years uh, in between undergrad and grad school. I didn't do a lot of film. I have what they call a great face for radio, but I did a ton <laughs> of theater and I did a ton of voiceovers. Okay. Huh. Uh, and then after that, I, my first book is about the human voice in performance. So between using my voice as a performer and a voiceover actor and then thinking really deeply about the voice as a um, physical object that you can work on, right? Like, like uh -huh. your biceps. Uh, okay. I think, I think that's kind of that and teaching. I think those, those three things put me in a position where I, I feel not terribly underconfident talking to people about how to make, how to make better choices when they're reading out loud. And I like the idea of thinking of it as a muscle that you train for, because I think sometimes people think that like the, the reading or public presentation or lecture part of their careers is sort of the frosting on the cake mm -hmm. of their expertise. When in fact, it's also a part of the cake. It feels like that really you shouldn't shortchange mm -hmm. um, your public presentations because that's really the face of your expertise. And so mm -hmm. let's, let's talk about ways to get that muscle yeah, fit. Sure. Well, the, I think the first thing to think about and writers especially need help thinking about this because they spend so much time making a book that really they think should speak for itself. Mm. But there's a real difference between somebody sitting in a comfy chair uh, with a mug of tea and all the time in the world reading a book and stopping and starting and really setting their own pace. The world is two-dimensional. Um, there's a direct transference between the words that they're reading and the things that they can picture in their head. Uh, there's a, a vast difference between that and a physical performance space with, you know, bartenders dropping their glasses, or if you're just in a presentation, you know, people staring out the window, a body saying things that an ear then has to hear and process in real time with no time for revision. They're just two completely different mediums. Um, so you have to first remember that there's no way that you, that what you do on the page can be immediately transferred into the performance space without some kind of work. Yeah, and it, it feels like there's, the, there's an old tradition among writers where the words on the page just speak for themselves. I'm not a dancing monkey. I'm not going to perform this right. or that. But it feels like writers have made an easier transition into social media mm -hmm. as an auxiliary to their main writing. Maybe because they can do it in their underwear, just like they're yeah. writing. <laughs> but, uh, 
So Yeah, that's the other first tip of, of reading your work or anything out loud is probably don't do it in your underwear unless it's a special conference for that. So I'm sorry for those in my audience, you do have to put pants on. Usually it's a good idea to put pants on for your, for your presentations and public readings. This is so helpful. Wear pants. Right. Rule number one. And that's it. That's been our podcast. Thanks, everybody. Wear pants. Giraffes are great. This is a one bullet point uh, set of advice. So, so yeah, I, I think that even there's a self-consciousness to writers, but then again, since not everybody listening is going to be writers, even to people who are experts in other fields and are mm -hmm. suddenly expected to talk about their expertise mm -hmm. and to sort of make it understandable for mm -hmm. an assembled audience who might be looking down at their Instagram feeds or looking out at the rainstorm outside. So let's think about this in terms of preparation and, and, and delivery and, and all that stuff. Sure, yeah. Um, I think another thing to sort of keep in mind too is that there's no one way to do it. Like a lot of people are like, I have to be exactly like the guy that was in this TED talk because I was so moved by the way that he or she spoke. Or I love this reader, this reader is so animated. L Luis Alberto Urea, you know, mm. the fiction writer is this amazing reader out loud. He, he's like Dickens, he like drops the book and does all these voices and wow. people are like, why even try? Or I wanna, I, I wanna try to do that, but I'm not like that kind of person. I don't think it's like, you need to be exactly like the people that you, admire when you see them read or pr present, I think you should just pick the people that really uh, speak to you and try to steal the things that they do or try to understand the things that they do that really work for you and then translate that into what you can do, right? So does this involve like looking at YouTube videos and TED Talks or like, sure. so sort of you're studying other people to Absolutely. steal? Yeah. Cues for your own presentation. And and like pay attention to yourself in real rooms, not not videos where you're being presented to. This could mm. be church. This could be a play. This could be a class. Um, when notice when you tune out. Notice mm. when somebody gets your attention back. It's just the same like with writers. They say you have to read like a writer now. You can't just read for leisure anymore. You have to sort of read for craft. You have to do that. Uh, it's it's easy and fun. Um, I think, but you know, I'm a little bit of a nerd for this stuff. Uh, yeah, start start getting a sense of like what it feels like to be respected as an audience member and what it feels like to be successfully communicated to as an audience member and take notes on that. Um, those are those are the things that, you, you know, the sort of prep work stuff that you can do before you even get started uh, so that you're not just like mimicking someone. You're, you're thinking deeply about how the choices that they make affect you when you're in that when you're in the audience chair versus the presentation chair. So the audience and their expectations and their beliefs are, are, gonna, are gonna affect what you say or how it's received too. Yeah, so sure. if it's if it's a how if it's a room full of gray haired people, it's gonna be different than it's a room full of college students yeah. who maybe are being forced to go there by their professor, right? Yeah, yeah. And even knowing like that people are being forced there by the professor understanding that's the reason that they're sitting, that can change the way that you talk versus yeah. people who've paid to be there, which is very different. Uh, or people who are there at the end of a long conference day, you know, where you're the keynote or, uh, or you know, where are you in the dinner schedule? <laughs> that could be very important too. Right, and uh, again, I don't want this to be intimidating for our audience, <laughs> no. but it's a good, these are data points that yeah. are good to bring into this. Like obviously, There'll be an ex if you do this enough, there'll be an extent to which you have sort of a stump speech, you yep. know, that, that sort of your the standard thing you say, but it sort of has to be tweaked depending on who is doing the listening. Mm -hmm. 
Just as an aside, it started to rain in Paris, which is sort of awesome. Elena yeah. has an umbrella, so we're just going to roll with as it. As long as you're cool with being umbrellized, yeah. do you mind? That's not a problem. It might make the audio better. Um, so <laughs> given the fact that, and again, I don't want to sound intimidating, that, that there'll be slight differences in the audience, um, how do we prepare? How do you mentally conceptualize giving a reading or a talk or a lecture? Uh, the, the first practical thing to get your head around is that you're going to need to practice and you're going to need to practice in real time. I think the majority of issues that, uh, I talk mostly to people who read their own work aloud, uh, but I think it would probably be the same with different present, like people who give presentations. I teach at a university, so I see a lot of craft lectures and people presenting papers. Um, they've obviously practiced because they're professionals, but they haven't practiced in real time. Hmm. Um, and so what does that mean? What's the difference between practicing in real time and non-real time? Right. So if you're putting a play on, you would never like let an audience in to see a play that everybody had just kind of read sitting down oh, okay. without their costumes on. Or, you know, you're just like, okay, and then sword fight and then they kiss, 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 right? There's a version of that with public presentation and readings where you're at home. Maybe you have not put on your pants <laughs> and uh, you're kind of running through like, oh, there's Ralph Potts. I'm so excited to be here. And the thing, thing. you've got to make sure. And then the community college. Uh, where you're, you're running through, you're sort of doing it under your breath because you don't want to wake up the neighbors. I say, um, do it as a dress rehearsal, right? Like um, full voice, stand up, wear shoes. If you know what kind of shoes you like to wear most of the time, put that pair on hmm. and set a timer and um, you know really know all of the parameters of that presentation that you can get from the privacy of your living room or your office or whatever. Should you have people come and listen to you? I, I mean, that, I don't know, maybe not. I mean, maybe if, if it makes you feel better, like, you know, some people like to share their work with other people and other people don't. Before they, right. But I think the point, the, the, there's so many variables in a presentation, you just brought one up, right? Like saying something off the cuff that hits the room differently. And I say, put as many controls in that room as possible. So when the variables show up, you have a lot of mental bandwidth to address them and you have the confidence uh, of those controls to sort of manipulate your space, right? Hmm. So um, that's, I mean, that way, this also helps with, I think, the number one thing that people talk to me about, which is nervousness, and we can talk, I can speak a lot more about that, but okay. all of it, all of the things, the nervousness, the controlling uh, unusual situations, the uh, being able to actually be present so you can enjoy it, like a lot of hmm. people do this because they like to do it, hmm. and they and they want to be a part of a community. I think having as much of the presentation in your muscle memory as possible oh. will allow for all that other material to take place. So put on your shoes, stand up, plant your feet. If you're doing something that involves audio visuals, get that you know, as set as possible and um, use your voice, drink, plan your time for water where you take your water sips or whatever you wanna do, right? Plan uh, eye contact. We can talk a little more specifically about eye contact if you wanna have some controversial theories about eye contact. Um, uh, yeah, but do it in real time. The, the theater thing is for every one minute of like stage combat, you have to rehearse for an hour hmm. for safety reasons. And every, if you get a, if you cast in a play and you go through the script and you see that you're involved in some kind of stage combat, you're like, oh man, because you know, you have to be there 30 oh. minutes before everybody else, every show, because you run that fight every night. Right, you have a fight right. call. That's because there are a lot of things that could go wrong in that particular piece of uh, performance. And so it's like the union obliges you to mm -hmm. make sure you get it right. 
I think you should treat your performance, your, your, your presentation, your reading that way, right? Like just always putting it in your muscle memory, always keeping track of it and putting an exponentially larger amount of time into rehearsing it than you would to perform it. If, that's, if, if, if you learn anything, I think from all of these rambles, I think that's probably the most important thing. Well, one thing you said, you used the word muscle memory. Uh -huh. And I was just thinking like, there's a vagabonding talk that I've been giving for 16 years. And uh. I, I sort of know it's rhythms. I know which jokes work, all this stuff. And that comes from having given it in public mm. maybe hundreds of times by now, but that can actually add to your holster of experiences that, yeah. that it's, of course, my fifth vagabonding talk is going to be better than my first vagabonding talk. And yeah. by the way, I literally forgot the name of my book the first time I was talking about it. <laughs> there's there's Elliot really? Bay books in Seattle, yeah. <laughs> um, and so my fifth talk was much better than my, but why not make your first talk your fifth talk? You know, if yeah. you've practiced it at home, then you have, you're just that much far ahead. Now, obviously, if you don't have an audience to see if they were reacting to your jokes, it's, it's a little different. Yeah. But you do have that muscle memory. You do have the rhythms. Yeah you do even know what sounds stupid now that it's been said out loud. Yeah. You know, and you can make some corrections. Right. Or you know, you, you, if you, about the third time you rehearse it in real time, you'll start to be able to kind of be your own audience and you'll start to be able to hear, oh, this is a tricky concept. I need to slow this down. Or oh, this, this, this involves a, a cause and effect situation where the units of cause and effect are kind of big and, you know, it's like a sentence with a bunch of clauses mm -hmm. in it. So I need to... I need to just like either put another slide in there or if I'm reading it out loud, I need to slow down or I need to alter my voice. You, you, the, the, the more you sort of perform at home, the more you're gonna be able to sort of step outside yourself. And then, and then yeah, if you wanna bring other people into the sitch, you can. I, I've never, I mean, I guess I read out loud to my partner, but that's more like for compositional. Like, hmm. I'm like, does this sound dumb? You know, uh, anyway. Yeah, so, um, yeah. And then, well, I don't know, should we talk about nervousness? Let's talk about nervousness because that feels like a preparation stage concern. Do you get nervous still when you... No, I mean, I, I get a little on edge. I, I just gave a talk in Kazakhstan of all places. And... <laughs> Where anyone would be on edge to give a talk because of those right. horses. No, right, just... no, I, I, I went to a place, I went to a horse uh, training facility when I was in Kazakhstan. Oh, cool. But um, there's a necessary nervousness, which is really just sort of part of preparation. It's like, if you're, if you're completely not nervous, I've found I don't do as well as when I'm a little bit nervous, mm -hmm. um, I think in, in a way I wasn't sure. A lot of people in the audience, most people in the audience, English was their second language. I wanted to be cognizant of that. But I remember when I was in, a, when I did plays in the sixth grade, my last play I was in was 1983. That was when I retired from drama. Wow. I was not nervous at all before a I sad played. sad day for the, all of us. <laughs> oh, no, you aren't. Because I wasn't nervous because I thought I've done this a million times. And then I, I was so nervous actually once it started that I hadn't used up any nerves beforehand, that once it started, when I was singing my song, I started trilling because <laughs> my heart was beating so fast. And so uh, I still remember the, the words to the song. Oh, I went to the forest one day and I found me a home of trees. And I took my ax and I chopped and I chopped and they fell right down to the ground. Was your voice and, this low in third no, grade? No. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever sung on, on your podcast before? No, I Is this the first? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's going to be a paywall behind this podcast. I, I brought in so many strange details, personal details, that you'll have to be a special subscriber to listen to this one. Um, anyway, yes. So nerves are something, they're tricky that 
I think it's not just a matter of completely eliminating nervousness, but yeah. it's a matter of containing nervousness so that it feeds your performance rather than detracts from it. Yeah, yeah, there's the kind of nervousness that makes it difficult to be inside your body and think clearly, and then there's the kind of nervousness that pumps you up. Okay. And one will keep the other from happening, right? Okay. Okay. I, I mean, there's, there's, like, there's like performance juice, right? Like nature's roids. And then there's... <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Performance Juice. Nature's, Nature's Roids. And the jingle will be sung by third grade baritone Rolf Potts. But that's good, that's good nervousness. Yeah. I Performance think, Juice is good nervousness. Yeah, and, and if you don't have it, that's fine. I, I, think, I think some people think that you'll, there is a, a, a thing, something that you can do so that you're never nervous. And I mean, I've, I've, I've done, I think I, I've read from my book a billion times and I'm always, I was nervous when I read at Cafe Universelle oh, when we really? start. Yeah. It, like it's scary and weird and you don't you know, like and not like nervous like we like not like roller coaster nervous. Like yeah, it's I I was and I'm much more nervous presenting my own work than I was when I was an actor because I don't I mean, I don't know, like it's like you, you it's scary to be yourself in front of people. <laughs> yeah, well actually so my listeners know Cafe Universelle is where we do our readings in Paris. Right. Students do them there but there was a faculty reading and I actually started that and I was nervous in part because it was so dim there that I couldn't read the yeah. small print on my page. <laughs> yeah. And so again, I, I felt suddenly I was self-conscious about my reading. I wasn't mm -hmm. completely in the reading. I was not just straining to read the words on the page in the dimness, but I was also worried that the next paragraph would be even harder. Yeah. Um, and so actually that's good to hear that you were nervous that night oh, in, yeah. on your own terms. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, uh, but I had practiced. So when I got there, I couldn't see either, but I knew I mean, I knew, like, my brain knew the page in a different way, right? Like, I I read that a bunch. And that is a peal of thunder. I, I hope that makes it through uh, <laughs> into these microphones. This this episode is brought to you by a Paris thunderstorm. Yay. This is actually, and I'm sorry for all the asides, those of you who are listening, but yesterday it was like 109 degrees. Yeah. And now it's maybe 78 and it's raining and we're yeah. sitting under an umbrella under some trees in a place where a giraffe once hung yeah, out. like steps and, away. <laughs> and, it's, and it's kind of awesome. Yeah. So anyhow, anyhow focus, yeah. nervousness. So um, that you can practice at home too. I think the main thing is to just control, try to figure out how to control your body and do it ahead of time. Um, breathing, right? Like practice breathing the way so that you breathe the exact same way. Like it's a dance move so that you breathe the exact same way at home that you do up there. Uh, so don't just start by reading the things aloud in your regular, comfortable living room self. Like, imagine yourself taking a quick breath, a real breath, not like a performance breath where people are like, ah, I'm so nervous, right? Uh, and when you take that breath, like, be aware of your feet on the ground, like, literally holding you up. Like, be aware of the solidness, right? Because what that's gonna do is that's gonna, that's gonna tell the anxiety in your body that's making your breath freak out I'm here, I'm alive, I'm supported, right? And the extremity things that make for handshaking, knee, knee knocking, that will go down. I also love, um, I think also when your handshake, you know, your nervousness is gonna sort of manifest itself in your extremities. When your handshake and then you see your handshaking and you know that the audience can see your handshaking, you get really nervous. So have something to hold on to, like hmm. a clipboard, uh, which really grounds those nervous hands. Um, which will allow you to go, look, my hands are grounded, and then your breath will allow your heart rate to slow. Or if there's a podium, hold on to that podium. Or if you've got a clicker, 
clicker. I mean, that's the Bob Dole trick. Although, actually, Bob Dole, I think, had an issue. Like, he had a stroke or something. You know, Bob Dole always held a Well, pen. I follow him on Twitter, and I know he's doing fine. He tweeted a few days ago. Oh. But remember how when he was running for office, he would always hold a well, pen? He had, he had a war wound, yeah. Oh, that's what it and was. And so he, 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 he had to clutch one arm to his body. And so he always held a pen. Yes. Just to make it look like... So that so that that, that hand wouldn't just be out flopping around. Right? <laughs> I wish I had a bigger umbrella. <laughs> right. It's 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 a torrent now. It's kind of great. Yeah. It, it is. It is kind of great. Actually, one thing too. This is another reason why sort of knowing your content is important. Like mm -hmm. preparing enough so that you know your content, so that if you are nervous, if somebody sneezes or rolls their eyes or or yells at you, um, then you can take a pause and then go back to that content that you know yeah. well. You know, your content yeah. is your friend because if your brain does freeze up, um, then again, it's muscle memory, just, just sort of knowing exactly what you're talking about. And I, I mean, not just knowing it as an expert on your content, but knowing it as someone who's rehearsed. Yeah, knowing physically where it is, like where you can locate it. Also, you know, um, if you practice breath, like I'm talking about, if something happens that really jars you, go back to that breath. Like you have this reset breath that you know how to do that feels natural and that will help you a lot too, right? It's all it's all stuff that you do at home, right? Like okay. that, that gets you ready. Um, yeah, and the other thing that I found really helpful is to like genuinely, when you first get up there, express a gratitude, hmm. like a real one. Not mm -hmm. like a, I mean, I'm not trying to be like, you know, live, laugh, love kind of thing, but like right. it really helps, I think, to acknowledge the room that you're in in a way that's like, yes, you're here and I'm communicating to you. And it can be as short as 30 seconds or it can be as long as five minutes, depending on what you've been yeah. invited to do. While you're planting your feet and feeling your hands in the room and taking your deep breath, your mouth can be saying very true things about like what a privilege it is to be able to do whatever it is you're doing. And that relaxes the body significantly. That really, it sends that norepinephrine level down it allows you to, you know, it's easier to talk extemporaneously about things that make you happy while you're trying to struggle for breath than it is to like, like be a great rhetorician about whatever you're trying to talk about. Can you admit that you have jitters? Yeah, sure. Okay, so you can tell the audience, hey, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm a little nervous. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. And, you know, um, yeah. And, uh, and that's, if you can connect your nervousness to why, like the fact that you're excited and stuff, I think it's great. Everybody knows that it's weird to get up and talk to people so pretending that you're not nervous or pretending that i mean i, I think that's just like uh that might make for more anxiety yeah. on your part so yeah you could say you're a little nervous or you can say what you know the reasons why you're nervous if they're if they're constructive and productive and yeah cool any other tips about nervousness before we go on to uh, the in real timeness of giving a talk i think so. no i don't think so i think that's i think that's it uh i mean it just the more that you can control before you have to get up there and do the thing that makes you nervous, the less nervous you're going to feel. <laughs> it's just sopping wet. Are you okay? I'm okay. This is the first time in the history of my podcast that my outline is is now soaked with rainwater. I think only one in ten podcasts are done outside, and the first this is the first time it's actually raining. I'm glad you brought a, a, an umbrella. Yeah, we would be in a weird situation right now. I just wish I had a bigger one. And I'm I'm I feel like yesterday this like 12 hours ago we were sitting in your apartment with some other faculty and we were this wet but it was sweat right because yeah. it was like 100 degrees outside yeah and now it's uh it's rain it's much more refreshing uh yeah this is actually rain. this is an awesome day yeah. I, I enjoy this a lot yeah um in, in class you talked about scoring or like annotating your script or your outline yeah uh, which feels like good advice that people would enjoy hearing so how do you sort of 
there's there's bringing an outline, there's bringing a script or or, or a text to read yeah, or present. Yeah, notes. Yeah. And then there's also sort of marking it up or interacting in such a way that it's not just this static thing. Yeah. So tell us about that. Yeah. So you were saying earlier about like uh, both you kind of were like nervous about the light level when you got into the cafe and also uh, something that jars you out of your mm. presentation. Um, treating, if you have a physical thing in front of you, notes or the script or whatever, and you and you make markers on it, it's gonna become uh, like a, it's gonna, be, it's gonna become, you're gonna be more aware of how it, how the page moves than if hmm. you were just reading off of something that you print, just printed up on your computer. Right. Your brain starts to find signposts in it. It's like, have you ever noticed when you first open a map and you're like, where am I? But then when you open a map again and again and again, you're, it becomes, you can sort of see it. Or when you're walking around, the map sort of shows up in your head. I don't know if that's hmm. ever happened to you. Uh, oh, totally. And I have a long relationship with maps. I mean, there's people mm -hmm. in my audience who are younger than 25 and have never used a map oh that's not on their phone uh, that doesn't know where they are. <laughs> but um, Another but option would be like if you're studying and you can remember, oh, that was the top of a page. Right. I remember reading that, you know, it's sort of stuck in your brain. Oh yeah, that was that was toward a bottom of a page because you, you've developed a physical relationship with the text uh, or you've, you're seeing the text as a physical document that was part of sort of your journey through it as a reader. If you can do that with the page that you bring in, you're like, oh, I gotta go back to, you'll find the paragraph more quickly, you'll find the bullet point more quickly. Mm. The other thing that you can do is you can make marks with your pen or whatever in different colors where you need to make eye contact, oh. where you have a difficult concept uh, that's maybe deals with a lot of abstractions that's difficult mm. for people to picture, mm. uh, or something that you really want to underline and come back to, like a core idea, like synergy or whatever. <laughs> or um, my my, I was I read at Cafe Universal a thing about pigeons, and I really wanted to make sure people knew that the 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 group that uh oh did I I forgot I can't take my jacket off because my microphone's okay. attached to it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh man, it's tripping. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I really wanted to make sure people knew that, about this lost battalion. That this pigeon right. was uh, in, in World War One. In World War One, okay. she's now in the Smithsonian, where I followed noted Rolf Potts podcast former guest star Ian Mackay through the Smithsonian ones. Anyway, whose alligator clip I'm using right now from well. the Discord House episode? That's season one, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Rolf Potts speaks to Fugazi frontman Ian Mackay. Anyway, you're in the Smithsonian. No, no, oh, no. Yeah, but but I, the pigeon I is in the Smithsonian. I wanted to make sure that the Lost Battalion was like something that everybody knew. So every time I said the Lost Battalion, because there was this long line mm. of sent, this long sentence at the end that was playing with the word Lost Battalion and the word last, and it was this big tumbling thing of sentences that would be really uh, available to somebody who was reading it with their eyes. But if you're sitting in a hot cafe, you might not get to sort of understand the syntactical backflip that this sentence was, this play on the word lost. So right. every time, I marked my script, every time I said the lost battalion, I lifted my head and I just turned my palm out just a little bit. Not like a huh. not like a puppet show, but I just the lost battalion, I just sort of like would rotate my wrist, right? And I made a mark in my script to do that so that I was putting it into the physical space of the room and it, okay. it sort of just underlines it, right? Um, you can score for when it, when it's a good time to take a breath, right? right. Uh, you can score for um, uh, if, any kind of emphasis, if you need to pause after something. Well, I was thinking pause pause for effect. You know, sometimes if you if you have a, something strong, 
taking a couple seconds to yeah. let it soak in. Or something that's tricky and important for the audience to absorb so that you can continue, right? Mm -hmm. um, that helps too, right? Uh, especially if you're dealing with something visual, right? Yeah, so um, I always like I always talk about Lyndon Johnson <laughs> about this because uh, you know he was not Lyndon Johnson, sorry, Gerald Ford. He was a uh, Gerald Ford was president for like he was two, like a, two years, two years, only president not to be elected. Right. And they I, when I lived in Grand Rapids, they had his presidential library and museum, and there wasn't a ton in it. Like there was like an Austin Powers room because they were like running out of ideas. But one of the things that they had was every speech he ever gave for the television or for public radio. They had his annotations of it and he had a couple, hmm. some words were underlined some words had wavy lines at the end of them some li lines had hashtag or uh, hash marks you know like diagonal stripes and he had developed a language for himself to speed up or slow or mm. emphasize yeah. um, that allowed him to sort of make a deeper communication with whoever he was trying to talk to and you can right. do that too uh, uh, and maybe that's when you would want to bring somebody else in uh, to help you understand the places where people get lost or where the concepts right. are. As many people who are probably listening to this podcast know, the average human ear tunes out after about six minutes wow. of orality, right? Okay. Um, it used to be, when I studied voice and speech in college, it was like nine. Okay. So in the past decade and a half, it's gone down three minutes. Um, It'll be five and a half minutes by the time this episode airs. Yeah, no, right. With all of our sides, yeah. yeah. So, um, the other thing that scoring your script can do is it can figure out where the six, five or six minute mark is and figure out opportunities to sort of bring the reader mm -hmm. back. And that, mm -hmm. that comes back to your, um, your homework of going out into the world and listening for when you tune out and how they get you back in. Mm -hmm. You know, then you time your reading and you see, oh, this is about the five or six minute mark. And you think about a way to um, just sort of refresh the reader's attention or the, sorry, the listener's attention. That, you know? that makes that makes sense. I mean, is is there an extent to which maybe you'll put a joke or a pause? Or yep, jokes are great. Yeah. Uh, Q and A from the audience oh, is great. Huh. Uh, planting a naysayer in your text is great. If you're doing a non-reading thing, if you're giving sort of a talk, uh, mm -hmm. like counter activity okay. that moves in a different direction rhetorically from what right, you're talking yeah. about. If you're a reader, um, breaking the reading and saying, uh, oh, and so. I'm just going to skip forward a few pages and hear something that happens or telling a, I love this when a, when a writer does this, uh, when they stop reading and they're like, Oh, and then when I was working on this, I was on a vacation, you know, and they just sort so of a like personal aside. Yeah, sure. If that's, yeah. if that fits sort of what, where you're at. Um, uh, do you know Nemo T. Geronimo Johnson? No, he's a, a great novelist, a uh, really interesting public speaker. He takes Q and A's, in the middle of his readings rather than doing it oh. at the end. Uh -huh. So he'll read for about five or six minutes and then he'll ask for questions. That's something that you could do. Teachers know this, you know, and they do it all the time, I think. But This, this feels important too for people who might be presenting on more technical type stuff. Mm -hmm. That the more technical or abstract or sort of specialized the topic is for a general audience just scoring the script seems or the outline seems especially yeah. important yeah just because the worst thing that can ever happen is the expert scientist or the expert literary theoretician who comes in and they're showing how smart they are and by the end of the speech nobody gives a shit you know? yeah and and when you're dealing with science or tech technical material or if you're talking about politics the words that you're using are not are abstract right mm -hmm. 
they're, um, they're, they're, they, they don't employ as much concrete vocabulary. A, con a, a piece of concrete vocabulary is immediately accessible to a reader. It's why we have idioms. It's why instead of saying, it is fortuitous for you to uh, plan all scenarios ahead before you engage with them. We don't right. say that. We say look before you leap. Right. Right. Yeah. Because look and leap are things that are concrete. Right. They they sort of in, invest in a kind of limbic action in our brains. So if you're giving a presentation, by nature you have to talk about big concepts like money or time or philosophy or you know politics, and you're not finding vocabulary that is very concrete will help. Or if you can't do that make this you're lucky because you have a con you have a physical space that you can use so make your image concrete like by using hand gestures eye contact visuals hmm. and if you have a run where um there's a bunch of abstract concepts like uh chance one of our uh students here at uh the paris writers workshops wants to write a lot about some social media fatigue he had a paragraph where there was nothing that you could picture um if he was reading that out loud um, or presenting on that, I would encourage him to. So it was use all conceptual, and there's nothing concrete or visual or, or yeah. anything like there that. Yeah, there was, and there was no like look before you leap translating, which he could also. That would also be an option. Would be to rewrite it so that it was something that he could picture a little bit more, something kind of scenic. But if you can't do that, that's understandable. Uh, use your body or your visuals to, um, or your voice to sort of dynamize that, um, so that there's something that the reader can kind of. Uh, I mean, this is really abstract with, uh, like, okay, so a sentence with a bunch of abstract language in it still has syntax underneath it, right? It has mm. but and 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 commas and parentheses. Right. So you can use your voice to musicalize the, the syntactical components of that sentence, even though there's very little to picture in what the syntactical components are setting forth. The theoretical units of the phosphate went negative in the experiment, but... Exactly, right. right. And three would be something. The yeah. three, negative, blah, 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 right, blah, blah. Right. But, right, it's, I always, the joke I always give is that you're a really nice guy and we have a great time together and I've really enjoyed being with you, but... And you know <laughs> something, you know the nature of what's going to come well, next. That, that puts tension, that puts a conflict. Yeah. And, and I think audiences are receptive to that. Yeah. And it's a road sign, right? Yeah. It's a road sign that the thing that comes next is going to run counter to what just came before it. So that's another way. So you've got your visuals and then you've got oral, you've got the orality of the music underneath. This is not something that I would talk about very deeply in my presentations because it's kind of hard to speak about in the abstract. Hmm. But since you have so many people maybe who aren't doing creative writing, who are doing presentations, that's probably, I don't know, maybe this is going to be on the cutting room floor. That's, that's some deep uh, inside baseball uh, stuff. Well, there is, but it's it feels like level one stuff. Because I remember when Al Gore was running for president after being vice president, his problem was that he was too abstract. He was too wonky. Mm -hmm. And then they taught him to be concrete and it was so unconvincing. I remember mm -hmm. him saying, well, now let's talk about economic inequality. And here's Barb from Ohio. Stand up, Barb. And yeah. it's just like, ooh, Al, you could do better. Yeah. Um, and, yeah and he had no mu syntactical music. So you would, okay. you would be like, it would be like, and then the internet is the thing that I invented, and then there's this other thing that we want to do, and I'm not going to, you know, like, he, he didn't speak in that kind of a monotone, but, like, um, a great uh, political speaker is really able to sort of, like, shift shift the ideas 
without necessarily communicating or in addition to communicating the ideas themselves. So you can, you understand that somebody is weighing two things and then making a decision about that thing. Mm. Or they're coming up with an example and then another example and then another example. And then they're telling you that these are the examples. And then they're saying they're going to do something different about the examples, mm. right? Like, I think mm. that's like rhetorically, I think great politicians are really good at helping people along through their their syntactical music. Well, one of our teachers, fellow teachers here in Paris, Ben, talked about sometimes when he's having people write novels, he'll have them script them. And if the script is 10 pages of two people sitting at a table talking, not doing anything, right. they should probably include some more action right. in that sequence. Um, I think similarly, if you're giving a talk that deals with abstract issues and you can't picture anything in your head for a page of dialogue, then you should maybe think, how can I make this more concrete? And a great example in, in late 20th century politics is Ronald Reagan, regardless of what you think of his politics, was a great orator. Mm -hmm. He could keep people in the concrete world of what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. He evoked emotional associations by just simplifying and concretizing what he was talking that's about. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think that's totally true. Yeah. And it's not, uh, maybe one way to sort of prepare yourself for that would be to talk to other people about what you want to talk about outside of the nature of the conversation. Hmm. Um, so, cause when you're just communicating with someone, just like I'm doing to you right now, I'm constantly trying to figure out other ways to exemplify what I'm saying, sure. right? I'm sort of nimbly trying to keep our conversation going so mm -hmm. that we're on the same page. So maybe you would get ideas. If you try to explain whatever you, you want to explain in your presentation to your mom and to a bus driver and to your babysitter, you might develop in just natural conversation patterns some some mm. concrete strategies right. that you can then sort of professionalize for your presentation. Yeah, I love I love your mom as an example. Yeah, because she can jump in and say, "Oh yeah, isotopes." That reminds me. Yeah, no, totally. That reminds me of when you were a kid. Yeah, that's um, right. So yeah, I, I think we, one thing we keep going back to is preparation, and, oh, and then yeah. just putting the time into. And just not avoiding the preparation for these sorts of readings or presentations because no. basically it's like homework that back in school you put the time in to study for a test and then you just become familiar with it and it's more natural right. to do well on the test. Whereas with a talk, the more you think about how to present things, what exactly you're presenting about, mm -hmm. it's just it becomes internalized in a way that you can't really yeah. compete. There's no silver bullet that's going to make you a better no. public speaker or, or public reader. It's just that this process of thinking about it and, and, and thinking of the right concrete examples and doing some practice and... and mm -hmm. I will tell you this though, like if you can, a lot of people don't really want to put the time in for this because presentations are just one part of their professional life or their creative life. But if you do, you will get better and you will feel more comfortable manipulating these things so that you your presentations become more polished and in almost every field that I know, somebody who can really give clear, communicative, and dare I say, entertaining presentations, it's like, it's like a gold mine. Like it, hmm. I've, I've made 10 times both of my book advances because I worked really hard putting them into the physical space of festivals, talks, bookstore readings. Um, like it is exponentially changed the visibility of what I do. Um, and it wasn't because I had a natural ability to present my books because I was an actor. It's, it's quite different. Um, like I said, it's really hard to play yourself, but, um, yeah, it's, I mean the, the rewards, even though it feels kind of weird to be at home with your pants on and, uh, <laughs> talking to your mom or whatever, and it feels really time consuming. 
it is a, a, a resource that uh, is, I mean, maybe everybody who listens to your podcast is going to do a great job and then the market will be glutted with people who know how to give great presentations. <laughs> well, but. it's branding in a way, you know, that, that you, of all the people who are, are the expert in your field or are speaking at this school or are, mm -hmm. are, are reading this travel story or this short story, if you're the person who can do it well, that people lean forward in their seat, if people laugh in the right places mm -hmm. and lean forward in the right, during the right pauses, then that's part of your branding. You're not just yeah. the expert in X, you're not just the person who wrote this essay, mm -hmm. but you're the person, and I've seen this because for whatever reason, I end up, usually end up doing pretty good in like my book readings, mm -hmm. is that people who host those things will remember that. Yeah, you know? no, And totally. people in the audience will remember that. And then, and again, I hate to make it sound crass by saying that's part of your brand, air quotes, mm -hmm. but it's part of your brand. It, it literally yeah. makes you a more desirable person, whatever you're talking about or reading about. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I think one of the reasons it makes it more desirable is because it's very generous. Like hmm. when I when I am faced sometimes sometimes I'm faced with when I'm sitting in an audience with somebody who's just really nervous and I feel for them. I'm very empathetic and I know that it's just not their day to shine or whatever. But sometimes I'm there and I'm like, you're not thinking about what it means for me to sit still and listen to you at all. Hmm. You're thinking hmm. about yourself up there, yeah. what you made, and how the, the, the I am not a part of this inter interface and what performance. Like somebody performing without an audience is just somebody performing for themselves. Uh, I, I, I think, so this work that you're doing, even though it feels like it's all about you, like is actually gonna get you into a place where you're actually communicating with the other people, right? You're, you're in an, and that's generous, that's respectful, and that's proper. So, I mean, if your brand is being generous, respectful, and proper, then what a great brand. <laughs> well, and, and this is so important just because people don't always do this. And no. I think one strategy that maybe we, we haven't um, landed on specifically is brevity, mm. is, is keeping your reading or your presentation short enough that people can process it. Because mm -hmm. some of the worst literary readings I've been to is the hotshot, usually male novelist who reads mm -hmm. from his book for an hour. Oh yeah. And, and who, even if these guys were great actors and they weren't, no. <laughs> who can sit there for an hour, yes. you know, sort of putting a movie in their head off of reading on a page? It's like, why not just email us the chapter and yeah. we can talk about it, right? That's unsustainable. It's an unsustainable practice. It's like feeding someone, asking them to sit, and you're not going to let them leave until they eat an entire cake. Right. Uh, this, the human stomach is not well suited for that, right? Like, uh, I find that so uh, unsustainable, right? And really leave them wanting. I think oh, yeah. some, sometimes people think, well, I was given 30 minutes to talk, so I should take 30 minutes. We'll give them, even without a Q&A, give them 25 and make them think, wow, I, would, I could Hell listen yeah. to this guy for an hour, right? Yeah, and if you're reading with a bunch of people, take the time limit that they give you and subtract 5% of that time for every other person on the bill. Okay, explain this, because I, I know what you're, what you're talking about, because I, I often volunteer to go first, because mm -hmm. sometimes one boring person, one person who goes over their limit, one person who doesn't engage the audience, who reads before you, yeah. can pickle the audience. That's yep. the word I give it to. It's like the, it's like they've been pickled. Yep. Um, yeah, I've I've had some real I've, I've like like walked into a real stinky situation. Like a, <laughs> I was gonna make a public toilet reference because of what someone <laughs> has done before. I read I recently uh, I read after a person said. I've actually never read this out loud before, and I know I only have X minutes. Could somebody just let me know when I've reached that point? Oh my God. And it was just like, you know, and, you know, and then when the person was waving, please stop reading, yeah. the reader 
Wasn't paying attention. W- w- hadn't, hadn't practiced, so couldn't leave the script and uh, had no idea. And so we just, and then it was this awkward situation of watching the person sort of wave. And that's a generosity thing. I think sometimes yeah. people forget that. Maybe it's not even malicious. No, but, no. Uh, I've been not. in those situations before where it's like, really? You, yeah. This is the first time you're reading and you didn't prepare, you didn't think about it in terms of time limits. Yeah. But that's an aside. Keep, keep going about the time that you read later on the bill and, and, and it compromised you. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it happens all the time because my, well, they're like, oh, Elena's loud and weird, so we'll put her last. And mm. also because my last name begins with a P, I often, as you, you might know, you're sort of, yeah, unless yeah. there are a lot of Rodriguez's and Smith's and right. I'm trying to think of somebody whose last name starts with a Z. Oh, yeah. Xanders and Ventralsnimers. Zinnias. Then you usually go last. Um, So if there's, let's say they tell you that you can read for 15 minutes and there are four people on the bill, I would never prepare a reading that was more than 10 minutes. Okay. That that allows me to do two things. The first thing is, uh, if you're reading toward the end, um, probably more more often than not, people will have gone over time. Um, Uh... But also, if you do kind of need to clear the air of a, a pickled room, um, or even, even if it's not pickled, it's just that there was a certain kind of material that was being read before yours that's quite different, you can use the extra part of the extra five minutes that you have saved to express that gratitude and talk a little bit about what's happened. Like, I think mm, I think I got mm. up, I mean, no one, no one was pickled in our reading together, but like, when I got introduced, I think I just like made fun of Ben and then talked about how excited I was to be there. And it's like, so by the time I started reading, I took, you know, I prepared a lot less than the time that we were supposed to read. And then I took about 90 seconds to kind of like, kind of like pour my special sauce all over the room and get rid of my nervousness. Uh, and then I still knew that I wasn't going to go over time. So. And it's a nice transition too. It, just, yeah. it sort of reminds the audience that this is, okay, we're shifting gears. This yeah. is a different persona. This is a different personality. This is a different story. Take a deep breath, and now you can listen to the yeah. story. So. And and nobody, I mean, when the human ear is going to cut off after six minutes and somebody says you can read for up to 15 minutes, every minute over that six minutes is going to be um, mm. not necessarily like, and, and not to mention there have been other six minuteses that have gone by before you or are going to come after you. So it's not like you're like, it's not like all of the minutes of your presentation are necessarily going to be, you're going to have quality ears. Uh, so go short. Like, People love someone who comes in yeah. short, sweet, yeah. well prepared. The other thing I think a lot of writers do, I don't know if this works for presentations, is if you, prose writers are like, well, you need the whole story. You need the whole essay. I need the beginning, the middle, and the end. And I don't think that um, audience members necessarily listen in that way. I don't okay. think, I mean, uh, occasionally they can, but like, I think, I think you might be able to just like give us snapshots of the narrative or snapshots of the argument. Uh, maybe give us a little bit of information on either side if you think it's extremely crucial. But we're kind of we're listening to take bites out of these larger things. I think a lot of people sometimes push the limits of their time when people are given time because they need to have this narrative arc or part of it in there in order for the audience to quote unquote get it. Mm. I don't necessarily think we listen mm. that way. Mm. Um, uh, or the, uh, unless somebody is given a large chunk of reading, like Karen Russell read a whole story the last time I saw her. Yeah, that's great because she had 25 minutes to do it or 30 minutes to do it. But if you're on a bill and, you know, the difference, you can snapshot in seven minutes of your piece versus um, like pushing it all the way to 15 minutes so that you can have the transitional material. I don't know. I mean, do you, I, I don't know. How do you listen? I don't maybe. Actually, I'm thinking of a student who read the other day who read about having a relationship with a girl in another country and culturally he couldn't understand it very well. Mm-hmm. He leaves us not with the understanding of why she dumped him, but she leaves us with 
when he dumped him. Yeah. Right? So instead of saying, reader, she dumped me, and then two minutes later we find out why, he just he ended the talk with being dumped, and it was sort of funny and, yeah. and a surprise and poignant, and it, nobody was frustrated for not knowing why. No. Right? It was a, it was a good presentation. That's right. Yeah, and and you know, beginning in I think he also began in media rest. He began with asking her out, not right. like the day I set foot on this teaching assignment in this far far, far province of Japan. Um, boom, we just like landed in. So so the reader knew the stakes immediately, and yeah. this is worth thinking about, like structurally be it reading a story or giving a presentation, make sure that the listener immediately knows what you're talking about and where it's going. You know, if you start with abstractions, and pe then mm -hmm. people don't know the stakes. You know, mm -hmm. there's, there's this random information, there's this, these impressionistic images, and we're not, we don't realize that it, it, this is about a guy trying to have a relationship in another country. Right. Um, and knowing that, it doesn't really give away your hand. In a no. way, it just, it makes people lean in a little bit more, I think. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of different yeah, it's just, I think, I, the, 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 for me, it's just don't expect that your great successes on the page will have the same value in the air. We mm. value different things when we're sitting in a room listening to someone. Mm. We have all this additional information because you're standing up there and you're grateful and you're, you know, you've, you've, you've made a polished version of yourself to present and um, you're celebrating this evening and it's raining outside and it's a beautiful cafe. Like there's all this other stuff that will become a part of whatever you're presenting. So then it, it becomes, you, 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 no one is gonna be able to shut all of that out the way that they can when they just focus their eyes on a white page mm -hmm. and, and allow themselves to be transported. So rather than trying to force them into a tube and transport them somewhere by reading an entire piece mm -hmm. or um, whatever, you know, just con like, just treat your reading like an instrument that's in sort of this larger cacophony of the evening. I think you know poets are great about that. They drop you in the middle of the poem. They read it. Hmm. Some sometimes you get the story. Sometimes you just get these images, and then they move on and they, they go to some somewhere else, right? Like yeah. prose writers should do that too. And, and yeah, and poet, poets sort of have an excuse to be a little bit shorter than prose writers and mm -hmm. a little bit less complete sometimes. Yeah. Actually, as you were talking about all the, the circumstances that goes into a public reading, I was thinking all the more reason to wear pants. But that's <laughs> that's just a joke that calls back to the early part of the interview. Do you title your episodes? <laughs> um, I do. Should do we you call do? this? All the more reason to wear pants. I think that's pretty good. All the more reason to wear pants, colon, <laughs> a public speaking primer. A friend of mine who has IBS wants to call his memoir, colon, colon, a memoir of incontinence. <laughs> This Shout out to Nate McKean. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Colin, Colin, Colin. An episode of Incon. We we are nearing the end of our time allotment. So what can we leave people with? And uh, this has been, I mean, we, we've sort of circled this topic in a fun way the whole time. But what yeah. can we leave people with if they are um, maybe feeling a little bit of nerves in at the prospect of giving a public presentation of something that they've read or something that uh -huh. they are an expert in? Well, um, I think it's important to remember that if you're an expert or if you're a writer, so you're the expert of that story, the, you should pay attention to the things that make you an expert or that make you you or that brought you to this place of expertise. And whatever you decide to do with your presentation, build it out from there. Don't try to be, I'm trying to think of a great TED talker, you know, uh, like, I don't know who, who great TED talkers are, but don't try to be, you know, Luis Alberto Urea or George Saunders, who's a great mm. reader of his work, or, you know, don't, don't apply the personality of other people. Apply the, what, who you are as a person that brought you to this place of expertise. 
and then practice, 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 practice. That's, it's, it's so easy. Uh, it's, a, it's a, such an easy thing to learn how to do. Just confidence comes from being in control of as many variables in that performance space as possible. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. This episode was brought to you, as always, by Airtrex, which organizes affordable round-the-world and multi-stop flight itineraries. You can get more information about Airtrex and the Paris Writing Workshop and the books and writing of Elena Passarello in the show notes, which can be found at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.